Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Lines Podcast. Not experimental podcast, but the Lines Podcast. We've been thinking about taking things up a notch for a while. We're very excited to do that. We have a lot to talk about today, including two breaking stories on the provincial front, a series of nationwide protests, and oh my God, we are now in a fight with India. All that and more as the Lines Podcast continues. Hello. Uh, here Hello. we are. Here we are. I, th- I think we should start off with just a little bit of housekeeping. Just I think explaining, we have to. yeah, explaining who we are and what we're doing. Um, so, long time listeners of the who, of the line. Who the hell are we? Who the fuck are these people? Um, no. So, long time listeners of the line will already be aware that uh, for the last, I think, almost two years now. Two so, years? Um, sixty episodes, but they weren't weekly. So, about a year and a half, I'd call. Been about a year and a half, we've been doing what we call the experimental line podcast, just to see if there was an audience and interest there. And the idea was, um, we are using all parts of the content cow here at the line. And by that, I mean, uh, what we were finding is that we do something called the dispatch from the front line every week, which is a fun, quirky, somewhat smarmy summary. Smarmy? No. no smarmy it can be snarky 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 smart summary right, of the of the week's events in news and canadian politics and in order to prepare for that weekly summary which typically goes out friday maybe saturday sometimes sunday um we were getting we were doing these these meetings essentially the equivalent of an editorial meeting not unlike what we would have done in our previous um newspaper careers uh, which it would be very common for all of the editors to meet kind of late in the day on uh, to discuss what the main editorial takes were going to be and what the main editorial lines were going to be, um, and then put those plans into action. So we were, we thought, hey, why instead of wasting these meetings that you and I were having weekly to discuss our dispatch, why not uh, shamelessly turn them into podcast content <laughs> and create not only a podcast, but also a video link for YouTube. So as I said, this is this is using all parts of the cow here from stem to stern. It's like when you take the scenes from the movie that you cut out because the movie was too long and bloated, but then you mm-hmm. package them on the Blu-ray as a special feature of deleted scenes. And it turns out people really like this. And also I think people <laughs> like it because they, they kind of get a, a bit of an insight into, you know, both Matt and I have long-term backgrounds and news now so they're getting a bit of an insight into what an editorial meeting might kind of look and sound like so just to get off the front when we are doing these podcasts we're going into them with a general sense of what we want to talk about but we also let the let the conversation take us where it takes us and also just so you guys know if you're just tuning into us um for the first time uh we we aren't necessarily coming at each issue completely set in what we are going to write typically what we'll do is we'll discuss the issue a little bit we'll go back we'll do a little bit more research and then with from that we'll come up with our final written dispatch so sometimes our 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 takes on this podcast are still a little bit raw um and we'll refine them a little bit or sometimes we'll even change our minds by the time we get to the written we'll get to the written podcast but that's but this this gives you a bit of an insight into what's going how our mindset is going how our thinking is going on a particular issue yeah and there's a few things that can happen um, between when we record a podcast and when the written dispatch goes out. One of the things is that sometimes you and I disagree 
on the podcast and the written version normally represents a, a reasonable blend of our positions because that's something mm -hmm. that goes out collectively under both of our names. So yep. it has to represent that position. We also sometimes, as you said, completely change our mind. There's also times that things that we've talked about here in the podcast, by the time we get the written dispatch done, and that can take a couple of days sometimes, it's either obsolete or has been overtaken by news events, or there's just more different interesting things have come along to displace it. And we don't end up talking about it at all. So this podcast for everyone joining us, we hope uh, you make us a regular part of your rotation. And now I am pleased to say, please subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on your podcast app of choice, because that is all rolling out right now. In fact, um, this is a snapshot in time. This is two, two old newspaper people who are now no longer newspaper people showing you how the sausage gets made. And I, I two echo newspaper it. people who thought that like, uh, newspaper people who became radio people who are now trying to become TV people. So you're getting, you're getting all the benefit of our total inarticulate talent yeah with our fantastic good looks that's yeah. that is what you're here for we know yeah, and my winning smile um <laughs> 20 years from now we're going to be metaverse people or whatever we're doing or Neuralink people whatever we're doing by then you gotta adapt or die baby adapt or die uh but anyways we hope you enjoy this uh follow along on youtube subscribe on whatever your preferred podcast app subscribe and I guess, Jen, I mean, that's, we'll probably, for the first couple of weeks, we'll probably do a condensed version of this because we'll be bringing in new people. Yeah, new people. But for now, um, we're just really glad you're here and we hope you enjoy it. It's a funny thing. Okay, so let's actually get into the news here. There is, or I would have said as of like five hours ago, that there was one big news story this week. The problem is, um, oh, and here's very basic introductory stuff if you don't know us. I'm based in Toronto and you're based in Calgary. Mm -hmm. We both have breaking news stories on the provincial level kind of erupting in our neighborhoods. But I guess we start with the uh, the India story. On Monday, which was the first day back in the House of Commons, uh, where we expected to have a lot of political coverage, how does Pierre Polyev handle his 12-point lead in the polls? And how does Justin Trudeau? No, no, no. All that stuff got blown out the window because on the first day back, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau announced that Canadian intelligence has reason to believe that a murder in British Columbia in June uh, against a Canadian citizen, uh, Mr. Najjar, uh, I think uh, Harjit Singh Najjar, I believe his name was, mm -hmm. um, had in fact, according to Canadian intelligence belief, been conducted by in some form agents of the indian state of india this was a surprise uh, apparently the opposition parties only got a tiny bit of notice on this but they were briefed in advance the opposition parties sort of made limited statements of you know this would be appalling if true blah 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 um the prime minister is not to this time offered much detail He's just said that we have intelligence or our intelligence officials believe the Jen here. I'm going to try and condense a billion people and centuries of history down into like a one word summary here. It's what we do here. It's what we do here as journalists. So I want Instant everyone. Yeah, I don't want to get hate mail for this. OK, I know this is not going to be all encompassing, uh, but India, uh, of course, has religious and ethnic minorities within it. One of the minority religious groups is the Sikh religious group. And there are some, and I don't even know how many, like I haven't looked at any polling on this. There are some who wish for there to be an independent Sikh homeland carved out of existing Indian territory, a separatist movement. This 
movement has supporters in the Indian uh, diaspora communities that has spread out in recent years. Canada is considered to have a particularly active diaspora community agitating for Sikh independence in India. The man who's killed... the other thing we should point out here is that at times the separatist activity has become violent. Of course, yes. um, oh, yeah. it, the, the, the Khalistani movement yep. is responsible for the Air India bombing. I'm sure the violence goes back and forth and back in back in India. The but yeah, it's not, the, yeah, it's this is bloody. This is yeah, and, this is a bloody this is a bloody conflict. And the Indian state considers the Khalistani movement to be terrorist. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the individual who was murdered in Canada, uh, again, allegedly by Indian agents, was active in the Khalistani independence movement. So that's, again, an extremely abbreviated version of this. There have been interesting comments from the White House and from the United Kingdom as well, and some of our other allies. The comments have all been supportive, but they've all been cautious. The opposition is demanding more answers. I have a feeling, Jen, and I don't like to say this, but this could get really nasty for us because when we were in a in a diplomatic spat with China, China is the world's big baddie right now. It didn't cost any of our allies anything to stand with Canada against the world's big baddie. The entire Western world right now is trying to curry Indian favor for economic and military reasons. They are a useful hedge for our alliance against China. In a spat between China and Canada, easy for Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom to take Canada's side. And a spat between Canada and India, that's more complicated. So I think we need to even go back a little bit further to the to the, to the core of the thing. And uh, I would agree with that. I would also say that so far, it seems to me that India is outplaying us <laughs> pretty ably. Um, that is not to say that I necessarily support or not support India's position in all of this. I'm about to get into that. But geopolitically, I think they're, they're handing us our 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 asses here. But um, first, I just want to start here by explaining to those few of you who uh, are not enjoying our our resplendent presences on YouTube, you may or may not be aware that we are boring ass suburban white Canadians. And we have no particular skin in the game when it comes to Calistani independence, uh, the authoritarianism of the Indian regime, none of this i mean obviously if if somebody is killing people on canadian soil that's a sovereignty issue that's a major problem for us likewise if there's if there are known or suspected terrorists who are actively involved in violent actions um on behalf of what's uh, on behalf of their particular ideological movement that's an issue for me um if you tell me that you know uh, Modi is an authoritarian and becoming increasingly authoritarian. My response to that is okay, noted. Like, we don't have emotional attachments to a lot of this stuff. Obviously, we have an interest in protecting the place where we live, but we don't have emotional attachments to the Khalistani movement one way or the other. So, it's really hard for us to come in and say, put it this way, I don't really want to see Canadian politics polarized on Indian sectarian lines which is kind of sort of what's happening here. And I find that to be weird, disturbing, and also a little bit bizarre because bluntly, and I don't mean to be crass about this, but I really don't think that the majority of Canadians care that much about issues with regard to the Sikh homeland in India. Like that is that there's, there's a diaspora community that obviously cares very deeply about that. 
but that is not the majority of Canadians are not are not hung up on this particular issue. So it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a it's a bit of an interesting one. Now, can I just add to that, Jen? I think we do live in an era where our politics is driven by a small number of people who care a lot rather than yeah. by a large number of people who are lukewarm. Yeah. Now, that said, here's where I I'm being going to keep my powder dry on a lot of this stuff because. And I'm about to, about to explain why. Firstly, so Sam Cooper, who's a journalist here in Canada, he runs a Substack called Bureau. He actually also came out with a scoop this week explaining that essentially there's some pretty credible evidence that the Indian embassy in um, in uh, Vancouver, based in Vancouver, was essentially running spy lines through a particular diplomat um, who was based out, out in BC. And I presume that's the same diplomat who got expelled in the midst of this sort of... Uh, uh, geopolitical spat between India and, and and Canada that's happening right now. So I don't have problems uh, believing that India is wildly up in Canada's business in ways that are perhaps inappropriate. Diaspora politics are a thing in Canada. We know that even though, for example, the Sikh population, I think it's something like 2% of the population in Canada, that a lot of diasporas, including religious diasporas, for example, have disproportionate weight because they're highly active within political parties. So, and it's not just the Sikhs, it's it's a lot of different communities um, uh, create block voting and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, Canada has always been home to that. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Uh, but it's something that happens here. That said, I have no problem believing that India's was running potentially spy lines in Canada. I, I, I think that's credible. That's a credible allegation. That acknowledged, it's a pretty significant jump from being involved in diaspora politics or even running spy lines through diplomatic channels, which most countries do. That's a big jump from there to assassinating someone on foreign soil. Typically speaking, assassinating someone on foreign soil is a cause of belly. It's a, it's, it's a cause for war. You are you are risking a very significant diplomatic upset. So if we are going to, and we, if we in Canada are going to accuse India of doing so in a highly public, highly visible way, we best have damn good proof to demonstrate and be willing to demonstrate to that that proof to the world. So far, no one's been arrested. As far as I know, no one's been charged. I don't know what evidence Canada has to prove this. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe India did do this, maybe India didn't do this. But even when, you know, our, our foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, was responding to this, she was using comments like, well, if true, we've gone on quite the geopolitical limb for a comment we're still prefacing officially with if true that's that's a lot so as i said i'm gonna withhold my judgment in terms of whether or not india did this if india did this that's obviously way over the line that's totally inappropriate and we should condemn them however i don't think it's incorrect to say you need that canada ought to be showing receipts especially when it's willing to risk a major geopolitical dispute with a major trade partner um, a trade partner that also affect, really affects uh, trade in, in Western Canada, where I'm at as well. I don't think that's an unreasonable position to have at this point in time. Um, the other thing that I find really interesting this about this particular issue is, is comparing and contrasting just how quick and aggressive Trudeau has been on this file 
as opposed to allegations that came out about Chinese foreign interference. One of the big defenses that I've heard of Trudeau's decision to go all full statement in Parliament on this was, well, he had to do it because the Globe had just published something by 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 Fife. Yep. Yeah, Robert by Fife, Stephen Chase. Robert Fife and Stephen Chase, who are probably the best known um, reporters on the NatSec file. That said, this government has had no problems completely ignoring and undermining Fife and Chase in the recent past. Fife and Chase were one of the lead um, uh, guys on Chinese foreign interference files. And when the Chinese foreign interference stuff was steadily dripping into the Global Mail, we had Trudeau do everything within his power to not respond and deflect and say that questions of this nature are indicative of racism. Mm. And that's in stark contrast to what we've seen where the like 30 seconds after Fife and Chase have published something on India foreign interference, Trudeau is all up in parliament condemning it based on, as far as we know, non-existent evidence that, that or at least evidence that hasn't been released to the public so far. The, the, the contrast is really interesting. I could probably read a little bit too much into that contrast, but what it does suggest to me, I don't want to say this in, in a way that that's careless, but it does suggest to me that the people who are leaking the, the Indian interference stuff are not operating at cross purposes with government in a way that the people who were leaking the Chinese foreign interference stuff. And I would further buttress that claim by noting the Washington Post came out to came out this week and said something to the effect of we we know that discussions about this particular assassination of Mr. Najjar were had during the G20 and it did seem to raise a lot of tensions between Trudeau and other G20 leaders when it came up and it might go a long way toward explaining the weird um tension between Modi and Trudeau during G20 as well. So a government is basically poking our allies, poking uh, Modi, trying to get a reaction out of Modi and trying to secure support from our allies for going forward with these, presumably going forward publicly with these allegations about, about Mr. Najjar's murder. A week or two later, this appears in the Globe and 30 seconds after it appears in the globe, you know, Justin's standing up in parliament issuing this condemnation. <sighs> what am I to interpret from that? Tell me, Matt, what what should I be interpreting from that? Um I'm not going to tell you what you should interpret, but I'm going to just sketch out the timeline here. Susan Delacord in the Toronto Star few days ago um offered um an interesting perspective um susan obviously is someone who who has the ear of the government and the government will will talk to her at least on some files the timeline is is largely as as you said it um where canada apparently has known this for some time um has been raising it with allies uh, this was not a shock for the united states the united kingdom or australia it looks looks like we kept this one in the family the the five eyes um, it, it was clearly uh, raised uh, in India. The prime minister has said as much. Um, mm -hmm. Then, according to the timeline, as we understand it, the Globe and Mail went to the government on the weekend, said, we have this story that Canadian intelligence believes that Mr. Najjar was killed by Indian agents. Uh, the government asked for a week and the Globe agreed to a day. And that's not uncommon that's on matters of national security. Yep. Yep. Um, what what Susan has said in the star is that once they knew they were going to be forced into saying something, 
the government had decided to try and learn some of the lessons from uh, how it responded to China and not to deny it and not to get into a scrap with the globe and not to attack the credibility of the intelligence, but in fact, to try and get out ahead of it and to make a statement putting onto the record officially from the prime minister in parliament, like no, no, no more official podium than that, the Canadian version of events. I find that plausible. Um, I, I don't I don't accept it verbatim, but I find it plausible. It's it, it is plausible. But I would also note there's a way for the government to respond to that story that doesn't involve standing up in Parliament and causing a big geopolitical riff. Right. Yeah. Like that. That was a choice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it was a choice. And I think the government has made another choice here. Um, like this is taking us a little bit into kind of like I, I jotted down a few notes before we started. This is a big one of them here. The government needs to make a more clear case than it has. And mm-hmm. there's been a really interesting reaction this week, I've thought, among some some commentators who are, are wrapping themselves in the maple leaf and suggesting that um, it, it is unpatriotic to be skeptical, to which my response has been a fairly standard, can you, you think? No, I mean, well, maybe that's implied, but it's been more... <laughs> Can you think back in history and think of times when perhaps it didn't work out well for people when the media unquestionably <laughs> took the government's word when the government invoked national security? <laughs> so I, I think, I, I think, Jen, I'm with you, kind of what you were saying at the beginning here. I find the allegations totally plausible. I don't mm-hmm. have any doubt believing that India would decide to take out uh, a Khalistani Cal- activist on foreign soil, well, especially, especially because I think Canada at... is a pretty easy target. Well, I know that, but also Canada has a long history of not responding aggressively enough to people who did turn out to be Khalistani terrorists. Yep. It wouldn't surprise me that, I mean, there were reports, for example, that India was trying to extradite this guy and, and, and those those requests have been denied. Um, it doesn't surprise me that if you had India look at Canada's history with and, and connections with Khalistanis and say, we're not going to get movement on this unless we move ourselves. That doesn't strike me as no. implausible. It all all sounds totally plausible to me. Um, The question I have, so you and I are in agreement. Like, let's go, just like, let's accept for the purposes of discussion, let's accept the, uh, we'll call it the Delacorte hypothesis, that the government is like, well, this is coming out. That would be the first time in history that the liberal government had learned a previous lesson, I will note. But that that would be great news if it happened. It would be. So they decided that, you know, rather than spend months playing defense, we're going to get in front of this, we're going to make a, we're going to make a statement, we're going to make a stand. Mm Mm-hmm. The problem would then come that I think one of the if if we accept that one of the other government kind of pathologies is on display here, which is they are communicating as little as humanly possible mm-hmm. when they should currently be communicating as much as humanly possible. And I'm I'm reasonable about this. We're like we're we're talking about intelligence sources, contacts, methods, assets. The government is not going to be able to be like please read our communication intercepts. Like they're not going to do that. But I think the government needs to make a stronger, more public statement about what specifically it believes happened and to the extent possible, why it specifically believes that. And I understand there's going to be limits, but for instance, I, the government could say, look, working with our allies, using informants in the community, as well as communications that we had intercepted and analyzed we came to believe that the suspects who we believe are likely the killers of Mr. Najjar 
were working in concert. I like, and I don't know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to hypothesize too much and give people the wrong idea, but in some way, link it back to India here. And look, it's, it's, no one's there are lots be satisfied of people who, with that, but there'd be more. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But also there are lots of people who would have had an incentive to shoot this guy. Let's be blunt. It's not just like this dude. Yeah, it, this it's dude not the government's of... job to try. No, you know what? It's not the government's job to convince a jury here. This no, is but, now but, a but, geopolitical war it's of a public geopolit- opinion. Okay, we're so not fine. even fighting. That, that I think that's correct. Now, the other thing that I think is probably worth observing here, and I, I'm I'm observing by omission rather than by commission here, but any information that we would have been able to collect on this particular murder would have had to have been shared through Five Eyes, which means our allies would have access to that detailed information that detailed intel they would have access to things that we in the media and the public don't have and in light of that it's worthwhile noting that the reaction from our allies has been muted um it's been cautious now there could be a lot of reasons for that the obvious one is that bluntly as you correctly noted well they don't want to piss off india india is being courted for for geopolitical reasons and bluntly they might have made a very ruthless, real politic calculation that you know one dead person in Canadian soil is not worth upsetting that particular apple cart. Yep. That would not be the correct um, analysis from my particular particular point of view, but it might explain why some of these nations have chosen a more muted approach. The other potential answer for why these allied nations have cho- chosen a more muted approach is that the intelligence that we provided through Five Eyes wasn't convincing. So uh, I don't know what the answer to that is. I can read a lot between the lines of things like the American statement, who, you know, I actually, another story, but reaching out to the White House. But anyway, I, you know, the Americans gave us a statement. They said, you know, they're watching, they're interested, they're cautious, but they would like the investigation to continue. I would like the investigation to continue. I want more information, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that for our credibility internationally and for the credibility of our, of our, of, and for the, the, the sake of our allies, I do think that we need to be providing more information. We need to be providing more information publicly. And I think you have it exactly right. Willingly or not, we've embroiled ourselves into a geopolitical PR war with India. Yep. And we don't seem to have, we seem to have done it without realizing we were doing it. And now we're kind of incompetently plundering and India's owning our ass. Well, this is the second point I was going to make. I, I had two points on the India thing. And again, I said before, we're, we're getting ourselves caught up in some of the pathologies of, of this government. And mm-hmm. it was funny. I was reading in a different context just a few days ago. I was reading about some of the China electoral interference stuff. I was just kind of going back and reading about this. And there was an interesting comment um, by uh, Jody Thomas, who is the national security advisor of the prime minister, mm-hmm. where she had acknowledged that Canadian security services are overly focused on secrecy. And I know that sounds kind of funny because you think, well, what's more important than that? If you don't know how to effectively use the secret information you have, you might not, you might as well not have it. Like, you, like there has to be mechanisms either within the parliament and the Senate or with even with the broader public in terms of briefing the media and, and courting public opinion, winning hearts and minds. The government needs to know what to do with the secrets it has Whereas the Canadian government approach to things has apparently been like dig a really deep hole and just throw all the stuff in there and bury it and then never talk about it again. Something we learned during the Chinese electoral interference uh, issue was that there were critical gaps in our ability to communicate with ourselves, Mm -hmm. where there were people within our own government 
who probably should have been getting briefings but weren't on the briefing lists mm-hmm. but there were people in our government who were on the briefing lists who weren't getting briefs because i don't mm-hmm. know like they were fishing that week or they didn't and they didn't get access to the secret email accounts basically so the these are all issues um what i would say is that one of the things i've noticed this week is that the government has not been effective at communicating and there's two obvious examples of this there had been a rumor online that uh that mr najar was not a canadian citizen the citizenship mm-hmm. uh, so the immigration minister mark miller came out and in, in a bold declarative setting the record straight tweet said yes he was don't fall for like the the bullshit <laughs> this is the date that this man became a canadian citizen the next day correction i was wrong <laughs> And it wasn't like it was supposed to be like May 5th and he typoed May 6th. He was off by eight years. Right. It was a completely different date. And I don't think like that doesn't tell us anything about the allegations against India, but it tells us that this government still is having a hard time effectively communicating with itself. Well, it also tells us this is a government that didn't, but this is the, also gives us the indication that the gut, this is a government that didn't really understand the degree of geopolitical blowback that it would be looking at and didn't uh, have its facts and ducks in a row when it decided to go public. Maybe it's more basic than that. Maybe this is a government that is just no longer good at being a government because I think the real. <laughs> is that better? No, no, it's worse. <laughs> Bill Blair, national defense minister on Wednesday was asked, whether or not the plane, the prime minister's plane, RCF-01, was delayed on the ground in India as it was. There was that whole thing where the prime minister had to wait a couple of extra days because the plane was broken. He was asked whether or not that was sabotage, and he said no comment. That set Hmm. everybody into a tailspin. Whoa, the minister of national defense in Canada won't deny that India, Mm -hmm. nominally a friendly country, may have sabotaged the prime minister's plane. You got to spend a lot of time in our industry before you can read the tea leaves on this, but I was waiting to see what would happen. Either nothing was going to happen and Minister Blair's comment was going to just hang out there, or his press people were going to frantically start walking it back. And within minutes, his press people were frantically walking it back and going, whoa, every bit of information we have is that it was a mechanical issue. The plane had a mechanical problem. We had to fly a spare part out for it before it could come back. Minister Blair later in the day, on Wednesday, went out and basically walked back his own statements and said, as far as like, yeah, this was a mechanical problem with the plane, no signs of sabotage whatsoever. This is supposed to be the newly focused reshuffled cabinet (laughs) fixing our communication problem government. And we are now in a geopolitical contest with a major nation and we do not Another one. have yeah and we don't yet have a non-classified but thorough and informative public version that can be briefed to the media. We apparently have not yet satisfied our allies with our confidential information and we have within a matter of hours of each other two senior experienced cabinet ministers making embarrassing corrections of stuff they got wrong on this file. So I don't read into this any particular problem with the India file. I read into this that the government's existing pathologies are bleeding over onto the India file. Yes, for those for those who may be just joining us, you should be aware that this is pretty much par for the course for this government. So this is not a new level of incompetence here. Um, the other elephant in the room that we have to address here 
is that during the last election, the uh, Alberta, sorry, during the last election, Justin Trudeau did, was not able to secure a majority government and therefore is being propped up through a supply agreement with NDP, which who's, that is currently led by Jagmeet Singh. I don't want to say that, how to say this, Jagmeet Singh has been very assertive on the Khalistani file, I think is, is safe for me to say. Um, and I think that uh, uh, the degree to which he has sympathies with that particular movement is has been established bluntly. I'm not saying that he has uh, uh, any. I just said I don't have skin in the game on 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 a, on a free Khalistan for the Sikh people. Okay, I, I really don't. I, I sure maybe it's fine. And and I think that there's a, a wide range of views even among Sikh people about whether or not that would be a good thing or a bad thing. And I don't think that everybody who supports the idea of a free Khalistan is necessarily therefore de facto supporting terrorism or inappropriate action. I don't believe that. Um, so it's perfectly fine from my perspective for Mr. Sikh to say, look, I support an independent homeland for, for Sikhs people. Like that's fine. However, it does raise some interesting questions about whether or not Justin Trudeau was very aggressive and very assertive and very... Um, forward on this particular issue in part because he's trying to maintain his alliance with Jagmeet Singh for political reasons. I think that's the elephant in the room. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do think that that is the question that is being raised by a lot of people um, in India. Certainly it's, it's, it, this, this, this alliance has not gone unremarked. Um, and I think it's a fair question to ask, right? Um, the other interesting thing that I wanted to note about this is that, of course, in the back and forth tit for tat retaliation, we've had now both countries dispel their diplomats. One of the more interesting things was um, the fact that uh, India issued this travel advisory against Canadian, Canada, against Canada yep. saying, oh, there's been a rise of like uh, uh, anti-Indian racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I found this to be deeply darkly amusing because of course only a few weeks ago canada oh. issued a political entirely political yeah. travel advisory against the u.s as as as, as retaliation for the u.s passing sort of trans bills and banning puberty blockers and the like and i mean we in the dispatch sort of panned that as like this is not the purpose of the travel advisory system guys like come yeah. on you can't use a travel advisory system in order to take pot shots at your allies so Canada is absolutely getting a taste of its own medicine when India now does this to us. And it's especially it's especially funny because, of course, we know during the Chinese foreign interference, one of Justin Trudeau's big lines of attack was um, uh, the people basically raising questions about Chinese foreign interference are falling prey to anti-Asian racism. So you kind of set yourself up that responding to allegations of foreign inter foreign interference is now racist so legit so india is now playing trudeau's own playbook against him by saying you're just being racist and i mean i don't think i think that that's disingenuous and juvenile on india's part but it was also disingenuous and juvenile on our part so like we're getting completely what we deserve in this regard and i say that with a full acknowledgement that india may very well be the baddies here yeah. so i don't know i found that to be um worth commenting on so to speak you know what i mean the, I, I think we, we, we've covered the bases on india i think but i would just add We've seen versions of this before um, when the prime minister met with the Italian uh, prime minister, Prime Minister Maloney, and 
you know, criticized her her record on uh, LGBTQ issues, and the Italian government immediately went after us on uh, ind indigenous issues, right? Like, there has been a habit for some time now of the prime minister flitting about the globe and making comments uh, about the human rights records of other countries. And, and then being shocked when those countries retaliate. We are so yep. used to being complacent and smug that we never seem to expect the blowback. Well, yeah, you know what? I mean, I'll probably save this don't, for the dispatch, but... Don't, don't you know that we're the good guys? No, we're Don't Canadians. you know how, how well-intentioned we are? That, no, it, we can't do that. This is Canada. Um, I think, you know, look, I'll probably save this for a dispatch, uh, the dispatch written version, or maybe even a, a, a column to come. But Canada is a country that is extremely spoiled. Uh, we are extremely lazy and spoiled and settled in our worldview. We are complacent. And I, I get it. Like we have been safe, prosperous, rich and secure and uh, kind of a, a part of sort of the triumphalist liberal democratic order since the Second World War. And as I wrote in a column here several years ago, our expectations are a problem. Like these things have gone on long enough that I think we now expect them to continue just because you, you know what you know. You know what you grow up with. And the world is getting nastier. And Canada, I think, has a tremendous number of advantages. Like we... like there are very few countries I would rather be in theory than Canada, but we have to start marshalling some of the strengths we have, or at least getting our head in the game. And what I've seen this week, even, even though I find the allegations we've made against India, totally plausible. We're, we're not in the game. Like I said, whether it's getting our own ministers communicating well on the, on the parts of this that are within their file, they're not. Our allies don't seem satisfied by what we've offered them. We have yet to make anything other than the original statement. And then the prime minister has demurred to, to provide any details here. I think some of this just might be the reflexive Canadian government hatred of disclosure of information, which it's you also, and I have spoken it, about so many times a, before. But, but it's also just a straightforward complacency. Trust us. Why wouldn't uh, yeah. you trust us? Yeah, no, yeah. It's like, well, because you've given us ample reasons not to trust you. <laughs> I don't mean well, to be jerks about it, but yeah. I don't trust anybody. I'm a jerk. This is this is the era. Of, this is the era of info war, and mm -hmm. we need to get into the fight, or else we're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And to date, I don't see any evidence that we're getting into the fight. Should we? Uh, should I mention Speaking. what happened in Ontario in the last hour or so? Can we talk about the national news first? Can we finish that up first? Because I think that you want to talk about the marches. Yeah, I want to talk about the marches first. You talk about the marches. I, I, I know that neither of us really want to talk about the marches. They just didn't seem that interesting. They well, okay, they are and they aren't. The thing that I would just say, and again, this is for our new subscribers, Matt and I are broadly classified as center center rightish kinda, um, but we're not partisan affiliated. We don't like anybody, really. And we don't like to think of ourselves as culture warriors. We're not. Um, there's a whole Culture warriors are destructive and they break brains and I prefer to avoid them. Yeah, it, correct, right? Which isn't to say that we don't occasionally talk about culture worry stuff, occasionally, but we don't really want our brains to be broken by that particular set of fights. That said, there was a major set of marches that went right across the country both uh you know you had more conservative parents and actually a lot of parents who are religious and muslim um 
holding marches in various cities, basically being opposed to what they would describe as sexual orientation and gender ideology, right? Yeah. They, they, they don't want that stuff taught in the schools. They, they have real concerns with it, et cetera. And you had them matched by counter protesters, particularly the unions got interested, got really involved on this one, which I thought was interesting as well. Um, you had a comment by the head of the BC Human Rights Tribunal, which that was kind of messed up, worth getting into. Um, and you had people just basically characterizing all of these people as hateful, anti-LGBT transphobes. Um, and how should I say that? It's, we're, we've hit a, p- a point in, in, in the moral panic when both sides of this have now been so completely polarized that it has become us versus them, good versus evil. And nary is there a, a nuance or conversation to be had in between. And it's it's I'll be honest with you, it's really hard to have sympathy for either of these protesters because all, both of these protesters are either I think let's do this. I don't know how do I get into this. So this is an interesting question. So one of the reasons why I think that people lose faith and lose trust in media is when they start to see unnatural language and and jargon be repeated en masse in multiple different platforms. And some of the jargon that I saw sort of uncritically repeated is the idea that these protests were anti-LGBTQ+, they were transphobic, and they were hateful. Hate, 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 hate. I saw that repeated everywhere I saw it. Sure. They're being described as the hate march. The hate march, exactly. So a couple of problems with this. One is that I think that if you're a journalist, it's incumbent upon you for the sake of your own credibility to be judicious in your language. I am a columnist. I express opinions all the time and people understand that when they're listening to me, but I try to be careful about that, the language that I use, because I want people to understand that I'm trying to be fair. I try to assess these things fairly when I talk about them so that when I do lambaste these people or call these people idiots, they know that I'm not coming at this because I don't inherently dislike them, but because I've assessed what the, the facts before me, and that's my 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 fair-minded decision on those facts. Okay, and I think that when you're coming out and you're describing this group of people as de facto hatred or hate-filled, I think that's an injudicious use of language. In this case, I think most of the people involved in this march, um, some of them I think are misguided. And you and I have talked about this in the past. Like, I don't think that there is some kind of grand conspiracy by elementary school teachers to trans the kids. That is not reflective of my experience with having yeah. young kids in the system. Yeah, they're not putting puberty blockers in the juice box. I, 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 I'm not seeing that. Okay. I'm not seeing a lot of evidence of curriculum that I would describe as being wildly inappropriate in, in my just, just as a, in my experience as a parent. I think that what's happening with a lot of these uh, uh, parents and conservative groups is that they're going to things like libs of TikTok, or they're watching a lot of um, uh, sort of more right-leaning media. They're getting exposed to the most extreme outliers, right? Mm-hmm. They're getting exposed to, you know, the U.S.-based uh, uh, pro-trans, extremely aggressive, extremely out there um, preschool teacher in in Kentucky or whatever. And they're watching the most extreme stuff and they're saying, wow, that's happening here in my school. So they're not coming at this from a place that's like, look, I have specific issues with point three, four, and five of the provincial curriculum. They're coming at this saying, 
there's something fucked up happening in these schools. And I know it's happening because I watch loops of TikTok. And the problem with that is like, as, and again, you and I have discussed this. Yeah, there's the odd teacher out there and the odd educator who is extreme on these issues. Like, like there's there's the odd teacher and the odd educator who's an extreme outlier on any issue you want to pick. You can you can find and cherry pick those people, but that doesn't mean that that experience is reflective of what's happening in you know grade two classes in the midst of Grand Prairie, Alberta, right? And and I think that there's a bit of a disconnect there. So I think a lot of these protesters are are misguided. But I don't think there come most of them. And okay, and there are definitely some lunatics in there for sure. And there are definitely some homophobes among that group. But I don't think the majority of them are coming at this from a place of hate. I think most of them are coming at this from a place of, of a genuine desire to protect their kids from what they see as potentially a harmful ideology. And I think that their perceptions of that ideology have been informed by extreme outliers that do exist. So calling these people hate, calling this march hate-filled, like, I'm sorry, it, it, if somebody's outside doing a march with like their skinheads and their flying Nazi flags, okay, sure. Call those people hate. You know what I mean? Like that, that I, I have no problem with that. I don't think it's, it's, it's necessarily fair to say that these people are, are the hate march. I, I don't, I don't see that. Um, can you call them anti-LGBTQ plus? Again, some of them, sure. All of them. Is that really what's motivating them here? I, eh, like we can get into debates about these particular issues. And I think that when people look at coverage of these debates and they're seeing all the media use exactly the same extremely loaded language and they're saying, seeing all of the media adopt activist facts, lines and claims and taking them as totally uncritical fact, they're looking at that and they're saying, well, I can't trust the media to cover this issue fairly or objectively i can't trust the information i'm getting from the media because i can see the manipulation that's happening right in front of me and i think that you know people in the media should be cautious of that right um on the flip side i think there are some inconsistencies that i've seen on the the, the counter protesters side as well you know um i think that being unwilling to address that you know, there is a current of a fairly uh, extreme gender ideology that is increasingly pervasive in the culture writ large. Um, and they are reacting to something that is actually happening and, and being unwilling to address that and address it on its own terms and either uh, uh, soothe people a little bit on some of this stuff or or, or acknowledge it is, is, I think, misguided. You know, it's interesting to me that I saw a lot of like teachers on my, my, my feeds saying things like, I'm not trying to indoctrinate your kids. If I could indoctrinate your kids, if I had that kind of power... I would get them to put to take off their phone, put down their phones, and wear yeah. deodorant, and like that's Light a really up their funny. Boots properly. Yeah, that's a really funny quip. But then the same people are claiming that if they don't teach sexual orientation and gender identity in schools, that this is going to lead to some kind of mass suicide of trans kids. So these two these two positions are logically incongruent. You can't claim that you have no power to indoctrinate kids on one hand, and then on the other hand, if insist you insist how vital it is that you give them the right information. Insist how vital it is that you're giving them the right information. Like that is a that is a logically incoherent position. And I, you know, and as I said, the other thing that I would point out is that I would like to see some solid evidence that teaching some of this stuff in schools, if you think it's so crucial, please show me some actual evidence that it doesn't in, improve the material safety of the vulnerable students that you're claiming that it does. Because I've seen a lot of people in media take that claim, assume it as fact without any evidence that I can see, 
and use it to sort of say, well, you protesters just want these trans kids to die. And I don't think that that is, I think that that in itself is also a misguided and maximalist position. So as I, I think that there's, there should be a call for some reasonableness and some empathy for both sides here. And, and as you and I have written in the past, you know, I think that if you were to poll most Canadians and say, what is your position on trans issues? You'd find that most Canadians can come with a, with a pretty reasonable position on this stuff. I don't think that people are as far apart as these protests would make them make it appear that they are, but they're not. The Angus Reid Institute just just this week with impeccable timing has been releasing a series of polls on the trans issue and uh, other culture war issues. And I've been reading them as they come out and they're fascinating. And they basically confirm what your gut instinct would tell you. And that is that Canadians believe that trans people face discrimination and hate that trans uh, Canadians want trans students to be honored, respected and taken care of properly. Mm -hmm. And that Canadians believe that there needs to be parental involvement and reasonable controls in that process. It is almost exactly what you would want the positions to be if you were not an activist on either side or the other pursuing an agenda here. Right. You know, I had an interesting conversation last night when I uh, observed this where someone had said to me that the only reason that support is close to 80 percent is because the question is not basically do you want kids to be forcibly outed and then commit suicide yes that's like right that, if, if if you don't totally frame the question in ways that are emotionally loaded the thing is what i didn't bother <laughs> i didn't bother responding like i i mean i engaged politely but i didn't respond at any length um the thing that just jumped out at me is that that's true yeah, 100%. If you ask the question, do you support this or are you an asshole? Yeah. You will get people saying, I support it. But yeah. there's another way to ask the question. So right now, like the questions are phrased fairly neutrally. And what we've been seeing is that it looks like just on the issue of parental notification of, what, of when your child uh, changes pronouns or name at school, it's running about 80% to 15%. And again, I was told that if the question was asked differently, it would be not nearly that much of a difference. But I think if you ask the question uh, even differently the other way, which is to say, should parents be notified with protections in place for students mm -hmm. maybe in danger if their parents are notified? I think it goes from 80 percent to 95 yeah. percent. We, we, both sides can play the sort of let's skew the question game, right? So, I mean. Yeah, and I think Jen, you've you've laid out a thoughtful uh, argument at some length that I think can actually be described really concisely. And it's in, it's two things we can say here. First of all, the culture wars have gone global, mm -hmm. and if you wake up every morning and you are convinced that there is a left wing ideological conspiracy to give your kid puberty blockers, there will be an example from somewhere in the world of some mm -hmm. moron tweeting a stupid thing or getting filmed in a class tweeting, uh, saying something dumb. That video will go viral. The Daily Mail will write about it and you will get your daily dose of confirmation. Mm -hmm. And if you are convinced that there is a incipient revival of neo-Nazism that is coming for your gay son or daughter or your trans sister or whatever it happens to be, you will again find daily evidence served right up to you that that is happening fundamentally you and i are in the news business we're also in the opinions business but we present people with information and something that we have learned over the years to our dismay is that the vast majority of people who come to us for information are not looking to be informed they're not looking to be challenged they're looking to be validated they're, they're looking to be validated right. so when i see 
huge protests like this underway, this is the result of a of absolutely some genuine concern over public policy issues of real import. But I also see it more as the product of an information ecosystem that validates your existing beliefs using global databases of anecdotal support, and it does it at the speed of light. Yeah, I would also say that I think that this is also a reflection of the fact that trans issues have been sort of culturally repressed for the last several years. People like us have been so reluctant to touch this because we know it's it's a live wire that uh, there was a, a sort of a growing social concern that was shoved down. And we all know what happens to concern and fear that gets repressed. Kaboom, it, eventually. It, it goes kaboom, eventually. So we're starting to see that now. The the other issue I would say, and it touches on what you were saying, um, I, as you know, as, as you'll well know, and, and, and regulars uh, of ours will know, I spent some time at, during the Ottawa convoy uh, protest, and I spent some time hanging out with the people there, getting to know them. And the, the main takeaway that I tried to impress on people was that it was whatever you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. It was a big and broad enough thing that if you had, again, that predetermined agenda and you knew that your audience wanted to only be told how fun and neutral and peaceful it was, you had your bouncy castles. If you were convinced it was a horde of literal Confederates and Nazis that were storming the Canadian Capitol in our own version of Jan 6th, you would find plenty of people out there who were saying or threatening horrible things and in some cases there were there were assaults and there were shovings and things like that so you could get to the point where whatever your pre-existing view would be validated but the reality of the convoy was that it was a lot of people who were there for a lot of different reasons and one of the things that happened over the course of the convoy is the moderates drifted away especially Mm -hmm. as the government pressure began ratcheting up there were a lot of people who were there going i think vax mandates are bad I don't think the school should be closed. I spend too much time on Facebook reading weird Facebook groups who showed up there in 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 good with good intentions and goodwill. Had a great party, and met some home. friends, and then went home. And then the people who were left were the fanatics. Yeah. These protests are what happens when the internet goes live. We are seeing internet in real life. We are seeing online subgroups that are coming out and developing a tangible physical presence because they're organized and they're monetized when they need to be in the real world. So when I was looking yesterday at, I was just it's observing it in my, in my own social circle, it's a hate March. It's a group of concerned parents standing up for the rights of their children. Mm-hmm. It's whatever you want it to be. Yep. And you and I and others in the press, we ain't going to convince people a shit if they don't want to believe it. The number of Canadians who I would say are actually genuinely open-minded and not only willing to be persuaded, but want to be persuaded. Five, 10% of the population. And by the way, they're the ones we're looking for at the line. So yeah. we're never going to be super popular or super famous because we're we're going for the niche audience. That's true. I want the 10% of normal people. Well, and this is the other interesting thing about the culture war, too. Abnormal people, I guess. If there's only 10%, they're (laughs) abnormal. This is also why you and I are reluctant to go into the culture war, because we've seen, for example, that when people start to identify as a warrior, they keep on looking for the next war. It's We talked about this in our dispatch last week. It's once you're you're a combatant in this field, you're looking for your next dopamine hit. 
Yeah. And, and, and people are always looking for the next cause, the next war, the next thing, right. The next, the next evil that they can go after. This goes right back into my book, by the way, like, like this. Uh, so part of my book is about the satanic panic. And I'm, I'm, I trying to identify key, key markers for understanding when you were in the midst of a moral panic, a couple of the key markers are extreme polarization. The issue you, because the issue is a, is a mat, one that is goes to a fundamental question of good versus evil, existential existence versus non-existential existence, there can therefore be no dissent or middle ground or gray zone, right? The second that you say you're with us or you want the trans kids to commit suicide, you're with us or you're saying trans kids don't exist. You've turned this from a disagreement over trans women in sports and you've turned this into a disagreement that is fundamentally existential. And when it's existential, there can be no room for compromise or, 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 or middle ground. Right. So that is one of the key elements. And I, I, the same thing happens to the other side, by the way, the two sides, two sides will polarize and they feed off of one of each other and they feed off of each other's extreme, most extreme positions. Right. Yeah. Uh, So that's one of the, that's one of the key, key dynamics that happen. One, the other next key dynamic that happens is the breakdown of ordinary rules of conduct. Mm. So ordinary rules of law and order. We can't be ordinary, polite. This is an emergency. I, I can't afford to 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 follow the ordinary conduct that Don't is you know expected what's at of stake? people. Don't you yep. understand what's at stake? Yep. So ordinary rules and law, and this goes to the rule of law gets bent, clinical trials. You can you could take your pick. The ordinary uh, free speech can't be permitted on this. I realize that we're a liberal democratic society, but free speech is too dangerous when the stakes are this high. Yeah. Right. The ordinary breakdown of rules and order. And then the other thing that you can tell when something hits social, it goes from being a fringe conspiracy to a proper moral panic is when it gets buy-in from gatekeepers. Right. Mm-hmm. One and it doesn't matter which side, right? Like one of the polarized sides has to get buy-in from gatekeepers. By this we mean media, academia, Uh, people within government. The second you have people who have actual um, influence and power start to buy into one side of the moral of this conspiracy theory or the other, um, you know, you've, you've escalated to a new phase, right? This is no longer just something that's that only very online people care about. This is now something that is going to be going to be hashed out bloodily in the, in, in the public square, right? So these would be three of the five sort of markers that I would have identified from the satanic panic is being indica- indicative of a high moral panic. And just people need to remember that when you're in a stage of moral panic, bad decisions get made. People don't think clearly when they are in a stage of moral panic and you can't know what the outcome of that moral panic will be or what kind of sacrifices or costs it will be imposed upon you or the society or to other people who get caught in the, caught in the crossfire of it. I think there's so, an interesting... There's an interesting failure, I think, and it's uh, widely shared. There is an interesting failure, I think, that is rife across our politics and our society right now, where we assume people don't really mean the things they say they believe. Hmm. And well, people I, who say that are telling them this on themselves, aren't they? Well, I, I just remember in a different like it was a very different context. And God knows I don't want to make this even more of a culture war podcast than it's already been today. But I remember saying to you years ago that if I actually thought that abortion was murder and that millions of infants were being murdered every year i would probably be weird about it too like and there seems to be this widespread belief in our politics that the people who say things we disagree with must be insincere because it is so bizarre or reprehensible or appalling to us that we default to assuming insincerity as opposed to no this is a person who fundamentally disagrees with me on this issue and I think when we talk about how the the um, 
these battles become maximalist and they become mm -hmm. totally existential. Mm -hmm. It's when you go from the going, these people are fundamentally agree with me, but they, we, they say and do weird things to, Oh my God, these people actually do disagree with me. Yeah. Therefore they are the enemy and I must resist them with everything I have. Well, Meanwhile, of course, I still think about 70 to 75% of the population is pretty reasonable. Well, and also, I mean, I, I kind of gave the, the trans activists a bit of a hard time there. Like, I would say like the flip side of this is you're, you're, you're taking a, a reasonable concern about, you know, at what age should we be talking about gender identity? And you're turning it into um, uh, these teachers or groomers who are trying to trans the kids. Like that is, that is an insane maximalist pro 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 um, projection of your concerns well, but on the flip said, side you don't have the you trend. know how serious this is don't you know how serious nuance. this is yeah exactly and on the flip side you've got people who are saying if you have any basically any concerns with what's happening with the gender identity stuff you are denying that trans kids exist and you just want them to die because you're hate you're a hate speech you're yeah. a hate movement i mean these are firstly neither of these are accurate representations of where most people on either side sit and secondly is that the only path forward from there is escalation, right? Because you've both taken totally um, irreconcilable positions yeah. that doesn't allow for any middle ground, and you both have staked maximum outcomes. The actual health and safety and welfare of children being the stake in the outcome. So like nobody can back down from that, right? You, you, are, you are ensuring that both sides are going to feed off of one another and that this was going to escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate until it gets really, really ugly. That's well, that's what you've assured here. I and I mean um, we'll we'll move on after this. But the one thing I will just add, you also have to mix into the the brew that you cannot assume that everybody involved in the conversation is a good faith actor or an no. actual human being and not some Russian intelligence cyber operator. One of the funniest things I read, but also incredibly depressing, and I remember this every time I'm arguing with someone on the internet, was how there were like some Russian group was arranging protests in the united states both for and against social justice causes using facebook yeah. and they were arranging them for opposite sides of the same public square mm -hmm. so you'd basically be on your facebook group and it'd be like show up to protest police injustice or police brutality <laughs> and meanwhile like you know 500 people would be like, oh yeah okay i'll go to the i'll go to the town square meanwhile like kitty corner across the street a same whole guys. other protest is being organized by the same guy to stand with the blue stand the up against the, those the who fight would... is the point the yeah. fight is the point and, and the other yeah, thing too is like the, the other thing too is one of the uh, big signs that you are in the midst of a moral moral panic is the rise of the grifter class. There are going to be people, and this again, you saw this happen with the satanic panic. You see this happen again and again and again. You will see a rise of people who are are willing to to hitch their particular profile and career to a to 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 a wave of concern and and uh, monetize it for their own ends. Yep. Again, you see this again and again and again. If there are people actually making bank off of this, you're in a moral panic. Yeah. And the meanwhile, so, there's the, you, the two of us, the idiots we are. Yeah, the idiots we are. Money on being reasonable By the way, I, and measured. I've, I've cracked the fucking code. I just won't use it for my own game. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's um. Let me tell you what happened. Um. Just yeah. over yeah. about let's an hour to, and a half let's flip, Yeah. Let's flip to 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 provincial politics because that's more fun than all of this. So yesterday, uh, Wednesday, and, and for for listeners who are tuning in, Jen's actually uh, traveling on Friday. She she's she's uh got got some events out of town. So we're recording this a day earlier than we normally would. But on Wednesday, 
there had been a revelation that uh, a, a cabinet minister in Ontario had uh, given inaccurate information. Why don't we put it that way to the integrity commissioner about the timing of a trip he took. And this all related to the development of the green belt, which I don't have the emotional strength to summarize. If you're listening, if you just, just go back, if you've listened, if you've listened this far into the podcast, you, you, you know. already know what the green belt is. Come on now. So, the uh, the the information that had been presented to the uh, integrity commissioner was while in Vegas, I had a chance meeting with a real estate developer. The accurate information, as ascertained, was that was sharing an opulent massage with a green belt developer. So that minister has uh, been removed both from the Ontario caucus and from the Ontario cabinet. And I called this on a local Toronto radio station when this was happening. And I said this yesterday, uh, Wednesday evening, where I said simply, when this f- scandal first broke, the government spent weeks trying to defend itself by saying, yeah, the the, the, the procedure was imperfect, but we, we were trying to do the right thing. And we're going to carry going forward here because we have to. We got to build houses, 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 homes, 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 homes. Say houses and homes often enough, and you kind of overawe people and they forget what the scandal's about. By a couple of weeks ago on Labor Day, an integrity commissioner report came out and was damning. Uh, oh, so probably after the weeks of this, one chief of staff finally resigned. He'd been thoroughly implicated in the shenanigans and resigned. That took weeks. Over the Labor Day weekend, an integrity commissioner report came out that implicated the now former housing minister, Stephen Clark. He stuck to his gun, said, I apologize that the procedure was not properly followed in my office. Three days later, he resigned. So we'd gone from weeks to days. Yesterday, opulent massages entered the Canadian political lexicon. The cabinet minister was gone within hours. That to me, and I called it on a opulent on a, massages. Opulent massages. It's can the rusty hookers please, of 2023. Can we, please, can we please put that in the title of this podcast? Opulent massages. Sure. Yeah. Let's make sure that we like that is some SEO gold right there. Let's make we that might happen get, for ourselves. We might get some. Uh, we might get some errant SEO hits. People might click on this thinking I'm okay with that. Podcast. That's fine. So anyway, we went, went from weeks. To I, days I've got to so hours. much to work with here, Matt. I'll take what I can get. All right. Weeks to days to hours. And that's when I called it on the radio in Toronto yesterday. I said, Ford's going to have to reverse this. Like this is the, and for, for our newbies here, I've been writing for years. I could, I could show you the column. I first wrote about this in the national post years ago. Doug Ford has a habit. He has a quirk. He takes a stand. It's not the habit you're thinking of, and it doesn't necessarily involve opulent massages. Doesn't necessarily. He takes a stand politically that he's not going to be able to hold. And that politics observers like myself look at that and go, hmm, no, that's not going to work. But he digs in and he fights and he holds that line because he hates to back off for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And what he does in that process is he burns huge reserves of public goodwill, mm-hmm. of credibility, of political capital, and occasionally lawyers' fees. And then he retreats. And then he tries to hold on at whatever the new position is, but he's already invested so much in that first position, the second position never holds that long. And then you have the third. And then what you have is what I've called in many different columns. I've written them at the National Post. I've written them at TVO written them at the line it's the total ford reversal it is when things get to the point 
where instead of salvaging something at the outset, having completely squandered all of his credibility and all of his political capital, he has no choice but to completely surrender. And on Thursday afternoon, a somber and shaken Doug Ford at a press conference, he apologized, said he was wrong to break his promise. He had made a mistake and he was canceling the sale of the Greenbelt lands. And I believe, in fact, because I believe that there were going to be offsets to the land that was sold. I believe, in fact, the Greenbelt is going to end up bigger than ever. I'm going to have to check that as a fact check. So don't quote me on that. That will be confirmed by the time we do the written dispatch. I don't know if I have anything to say that can be a better editorial commentary than just laying out the timeline. This is not the first time this has happened to Doug Ford. It's not the fifth time. I don't even think it's the 10th time. This is a classic Doug Ford overcommit. And then in the end, after some number of weeks and whatever the process happens to be, when the collapse eventually becomes, instead of saving something, it's all gone. Mm. It's all gone. So we went from got to open up the green belt to the green belt is going to be bigger than ever. And it's because Doug Ford is terrible at his job. He's good at getting elected. He is terrible at his job. And I just don't mean as a premier. I mean, as a politician, he does has no political judgment of the ability to think ahead and go, here I am today. Where is this story going to be in a month? And what are the smart things we could do today to, to buy us some credibility for later? He said he's hardly unique in that. I think he's more he's actually, pronounced. He's actually than astonishingly not unique in that. I think in that trait. I think everything about Doug Ford and his his late brother was the same way. They're so bombastic in everything. It makes it worse. Doug Ford has never had an experience that he thought was okay. It's either a disaster or oh, it's the best thing ever, folks. He speaks and thinks and acts in extremes, which means his reversals are not policy position adjustments. They're 180s. And he does them with a, you know what? It's not even me saying this. Like everybody who has spent any time watching this guy in action knew this was coming. The final tally thus far, we'll see if this keeps going. Two cabinet ministers resigned, one of them out of caucus one chief of staff and one member of his housing advisory team also at that Vegas trip where there were opulent massages also out. Plus the RCMP is now investigating. So we got zero new houses built. Doug Ford has been hit the polls, lost two cabinet ministers, a chief of staff and a housing director. Now is the RCMP on his case. And if he had listened to people like me and a few others Never would have happened, but he never will because he can't help himself. Doug Ford is terrible at his job. You know, it, opulent massages. For someone who is like terrible at his job, he really should be easier to beat than he is. He, I can't explain it. I've told you this before. Certain politicians just have that weird deflector field and it works until it doesn't. Yeah. Sure. And I don't know. This one was doing some damage to him, but like this guy completely came back for like one year into his first term. People were already writing the Doug Ford political obituaries. 
I was one of the only I was one of the only ones out there using talking to them pollsters, basically going, "How does he come back?" And the pollsters basically were right. John Wright at uh, Meru basically said to me, "If he can recover three percent a year until the next election, he's going to win again." And that's almost exactly what ended up happening. And in fact, in the face of pathetic opposition options, he won four. So yeah, Doug Ford repeatedly shat the bed during COVID. Had it just one debacle after another under his watch. Everybody, everybody's getting a, a mulligan majority. for co- for co- for COVID, except for Jason Kenny. Well, speaking of Alberta, do you want to tell me what your province decided to do? Oh my lord, it's so embarrassing. Okay, so the Free Alberta people, the people who are basically borderline separatists, have always come up with like a series of policy plans that they wanted to implement has this, uh either there's a couple of interesting thoughts behind the strategy it's either a way to deflect from separatist sentiment and channel it into a mainstream political agenda or it's a setup for a series of demands that were so outrageous that the federal government would inevitably reject it which would then just fuel more separatist sentiment and it has the plus side of being trying to implement some of these agenda proposals has been has the plus side of being very effective um, political cover. It makes it makes it look like the current political government is doing something for Albertans who are highly aggrieved about the current imbalances between uh, Ottawa and Alberta, um, although they may not necessarily be separatists themselves. So with that note, today. The government released its plan for the Alberta Pension Plan. Now, this is an interesting one. This is this is an, a long-standing policy proposal. In previous studies, it has been rejected as basically being too expensive to realistically implement. I mean, remember, Alberta's got a population of four million now. It's 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 not a huge province. The CPP is actually very effective and well run, and I think it's also fully funded at the moment. Um, and it has dem- repeatedly shown good return, good value, a good value in return. And for Alberta to separate from that program would require like a whole, not only a chunk of actual capital, hard capital that we could put into a fund that, that could then be used to create investment and investment vehicles, but would it require a significant amount of administrative costs, which would then, then be duplicated from, instead of having just one set of administrative costs to manage one fund, you have to replicate all of those those administrative costs in order to do the Alberta fund. Now that said, I wasn't always closed-minded about an Alberta pension fund. One of the things that Alberta has going for it is that it has a very young population. And that means that we do disproportionately pay more into that pension fund than we get back. Right? That's just that's just a, a figure of the numbers, right? Also, Albertans are wealthier than the rest of the rest of the, the, the country. Um, I think our, our per capita wages are significantly higher still, even to this day, which means we pay more into a CPP than other parts of the province do. So there was always kind of a mathematical argument for the Alberta Pension Fund. For me, the downside to this is that if you were to have an Alberta managed pension fund, it would have to be managed in Alberta. And Alberta has a really bad track record of managing its shit. We have a um, an investment uh, arm called AIMCO, which I think has routinely either lost money or made money significantly below what CPP has done. 
Um, also, there was always the risk that if you took them like Alberta's pension funds out and and put them in a even a, a a third party kind of arm that was independent of the government, there would always be a temptation to put that money back into oil sands development and investment, which is temp is tempting because it would mean that we could potentially um, make up the losses of a lot of the loss of investment that we've suffered as a result of sort of uh, green activism, for example. But the downside is, is that that would ensure that Alberta's long-term wealth is double invested in the same commodity. So rather than just being overly reliant on resource revenues, we would be over-reliant on resource revenues and we would be super, um, in, uh, reliant on our pension funds um, for the sa safety and health of our pension funds for those same Alberta-based companies to do continually well. Yes, which the opposite is, of diversification. Yeah, exactly. It's absolutely great uh, when the oil is doing great, but we're when you're talking about pension funds, you're talking about 20, 30, 40, 50 year timelines. Yeah, so the Alberta plan to cram as many eggs as possible into this basket. Yeah, exactly. So like this is this is the this. It's not to say that the math wouldn't make sense for us to have our own fund. I mean, Quebec has its own fund, but it creates more bureaucratic and administrative hurdles and it sure. raises it raises costs. It raises costs for a small population. And also the real risk is that you would see the Alberta government invest this thing in such a way that we could fucking squander our our resource wealth twice over, amazingly. If you were actually running a smart fund, what you would actually do is you would invest it on almost exclusively non-Albertan com commodities and especially on things like green. You would want to diversify mm. your 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 risk portfolio by investing almost exclusively in non not oil and gas assets. But of course, Alberta is not going to do that. So this is the big disaster that's heading our way. So this report comes out. <laughs> the report is claiming, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. I don't You're even know. You're laughing already. I don't, I'm sitting here in I don't, Toronto. I don't I'm keeping know. a straight face. I'm neutral. Okay. Like I'm letting you explain this. I'm not doing any Laurentian elitist bullshit. Okay. And you're cracking up. Alberta believes that it is entitled, if it leaves CPP, and it has done its math on the viability of leaving CPP on this. It believes that it is entitled here. I'll get the actual number. It's almost $400 billion. Uh, yeah, it's 300, I believe, 344 billion, no, $334 billion. I thought it was 74, but okay. So closer to 300 which, billion, which, a lot of which, money. Which would have represent approximately 53% of the total estimated base CPP assets on this date. Yeah. Alberta currently, I while you were talking there, I pulled up some current population figures. Alberta is slightly more than 10% of the national population. Yeah. And I, you are, so, on a per capita is, basis, wealthier. So, you're so, not 50%. You're not 500% wealthier on a per capita basis. The, the, you can debate semantics about what Alberta believes itself to be owed to the nth degree. The idea that the federal government is going to essentially collapse the CPP because Alberta has its hurt feelings and wants money is fucking juvenile. You're 12. This is this is a plan. I'm sorry to say this. I know a lot of the people behind this and they're smart people and I like them. But this is what happens when you put people who all think alike and have the same grievances in a room and you get them to come up with a plan. There was nobody in that room who laughed at these people's faces and said, you need to be more realistic than this. This is not a realistic plan that you're coming up with. There was nobody in that room 
who injected even the smallest amount of skepticism or incredulity into this. Are and you sure result, they just don't want to fight, though? Well, let me come back to that. And as a result, they're coming out with an opening gambit to leave CPP and take half the money with them. This is so embarrassing and juvenile, and it and it it. I think that the, the 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 argument might be that they thought that they were going to start with a really extreme ask and then negotiate their way down, but the ask is so extreme that it's impossible to take them seriously, and the federal government is within its rights to just be like, "No, we're not giving you that. Go take us to court," and they're and Alberta's going to lose. And in the meantime, at the same time, Alberta's going to have a referendum about leaving the APP on these ridiculous numerical promises. Because, I mean, all of the promises that they're making about the sustainability of the Alberta Pension Fund are based on this idea that we're going to walk away from CPP with $300 billion in the bank, which we're not. That's not going to happen. What would probably happen is we would get between 6 and 10% of that if the government decides to play nice. And we'd probably have to take all of our savings and savings and um, in the uh, Alberta Heritage Fund and all of that and and try and stuff it up. And I don't think any of these pension numbers they're coming up with works on with a fund that's closer to maybe which McCall, what would it be in that case? Be six, 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 so sixty billion, maybe. I need to do math in my head. I, no, never, I, you're a journalist. Never do math in your head. I'm a journalist. No, I'm never going to do math then. Basically, it would be a fraction of what they're promising. Okay, so the idea that that we could sustain as good or better benefits to existing seniors, not seniors who are going to come 30 or 40 years on, but existing seniors based on what 10% of their hoped for ask is pure fucking fantasy land. Absolute goddamn fantasy. I I can't begin to express the level of contempt I have for the for the amount for the reasoning that's gone into this. It it it's embarrassing. I'm sorry to say this because again, I like some of the people who who are on this. I'm not necessarily, I didn't come into this being totally skeptical about an Alberta pension plan, but if this is the level of reasoning and analysis you're bringing to the table, you're demonstrating to me that you don't have the maturity to, or, or political insight new to be able to negotiate this particular issue. You just, you just don't. Um, so moving on, like I said, I don't even know how seriously to take this. I, I, the The real risk that I have is that essentially you have a group of people who have convinced themselves that this is a reasonable ask. They're going to go to the federal government demanding it. They're going to hold a, a, a referendum on it. Albertans are going to be like, $300 billion up that? It'd be great. We're going to totally sign up for that. The referendum will pass. And then the Alberta government is going to try and cobble together an Alberta pension fund based on some version of a scrap of CPP and it's going to be a goddamn disaster. That's that's what I think we're actually setting ourselves up for. That's presuming they're, they're even taking themselves seriously. I'm not even sure that they are taking themselves seriously. I, I, I can't look at these numbers and see people who are taking themselves seriously. I, I just repeat my question though, is, is, this, is this just a fight? Is this just the, oh, I, the I really premier wish and the people were. around the premier deciding that it suits their own political agenda to pick a fight with Ottawa and this is a good issue to do it on. That would, if it were just a fight, I would be somewhat comforted because I'm like, oh, okay, this is just theater, whatever. It's possible. I can't rule out the possibility that they're this, mis- that, they're this that, that they're actually this dumb. I can't rule out that possibility that they're look, taking themselves seriously here. Look, I am by Laurentian standards, probably about as maximally friendly to Alberta as you find. I love Alberta. 
mm-hmm. love all burdens. Do, are you willing? Are do you? How do you feel about losing half the current asset base of the CPP to keep Alberta happy, Matt? I want you to understand that my next comment is not directed at you as an individual. Mm-hmm. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, that's that and, would be what I would expect. And it, and it's not because I don't love Albertans, but it's because I view that as an attempt to pick a fight. I don't view it as a serious offer. I view that as we are looking for a fight because it's easier for us to fight with Ottawa than it is for us to deal with problems at home. And I don't know. I'm a cynic. I mean, you and I spent the last couple of weeks talking about the E. coli problem. Is this a channel changer or has this been in the works for so long that it's probably not related at all? I have a really bad sinking feeling that there is a group of people in Alberta who think that this is going to work and that they're being I'm sorry but as like a policy or as a channel change as a as a policy because look the, some version of these plans like an alberta police force an alberta pension mm-hmm, plan mm-hmm. more control over immigration basically mirroring in alberta the the what quebec already has this yeah. isn't new like no, i've been again no, no, no. I was this is the software this fair deal panel the fair yeah. deal panel goes back to klein like this is 15 not years new. ago i'm at the national post having meetings with ted morton about this stuff mm-hmm. like 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 none of this stuff is new but I was just like, I'm just curious and I'm not looking to be a dick about this. Like, I'm not trying to accuse anyone of anything, but is the timing of this right after a bad couple of weeks for the Alberta government? Is it cute? No, or is this it's something not. that's this, probably this, been This coming? report's been in the work works since Kenny. It's actually a couple of couple years worth of work. And it's being it announced work. as it was completed. Yeah. Essentially. Okay. So that then, yeah, yeah I, I, then I accept I, that. I, I, but that, but that makes it worse. The fact that there are people in the government who think that this is a serious adult policy that adults should be paying attention to is more disturbing to me um there's something i've told you before and i get in trouble sometimes when i say this but again like i say this again about as positively disposed as you're going to find any easterner to be towards alberta and albertans because i do freaking love you guys if there is a big lie in alberta that has broken your brains and warped your politics mm-hmm. there's two contenders one of them is that you are a conservative province yes that's why yep no, you're actually not like and like I here I am in midtown Toronto and I look at the way you guys spend public money over there. Mm-hmm. You're not conservative. No. And you, like you're you're taciturn and like you help your neighbors and you put on your big hats and like like you have the affectations of American Midwestern conservatives. Yep. You spend like Vermonters. Correct. So so fuck off with that with with love and respect. Yeah. The, the other Big Alberta, lie. he's not wrong. Berta, he's not wrong. The other big lie that I think is in contention for breaking Alberta brains is that you think the rest of the country hates you. The rest of the country exactly. likes you just fine. Yep. And I think, like, I talk sometimes to, to friends or contacts in Alberta who are talking about Toronto hates us. Toronto doesn't think about you. Correct. Not on our mind. Yep. I don't get up in the morning, stick my Keurig pod into my machine on a good day, remember to put a mug under it, and sit there going, fuck, you know, Alberta, yeah? Like, you know? And, like, when I walk the dog and I run into my neighbors, I don't look at them and go, ah, Alberta. <laughs> and Jim doesn't look at me and go, oh, yeah, You mean, you mean you're not, you're not like, completely warped with obsession? No, and, us, and, our, and our the, province, our, our <laughs> landlocked province of 4 million people. 
there well first of all i have two things to say about that there actually was a poll a couple of years ago that polled how canadians feel about other provinces and what they did is they polled favorable views of every other province and then they excluded favorable feelings for your own province so basically the poll found out other than the province you're living in what is every canadian's favorite province you know what the winner was in ontario what alberta that's so that isn't that just heartwarming like alberta is the top pick and it wasn't a majority or anything because there's like nine other provinces to pick from but alberta came out on top of a list of provinces that ontarians like mm-hmm. and there still seems to be this bone deep sense in alberta that we hate your guts and we're out to get you and, and that I, serves the political interests of people here and i understand I mean, the historical origins of it with like there's, lopsided there's, there's, constitutional powers yeah, and too many parliamentary seats and purely like, blah, blah, blah. there's a, there's a whole long it, history of this but but, but get, get with the now guys and the other point i want to make is that alberta is incredibly parochial about this stuff or, oh. or in a literal sense provincial yeah. and i remember years ago i was uh, a radio host uh, at uh, global news toronto which was owned by chorus and i was doing an interview with a alberta based radio host also working for chorus and in the topic of the conversation it came up that the population of alberta is approximately half the population of the greater toronto area yeah and the host who was interviewing me was surprised Really? And the host who is interviewing me is currently the premier of Alberta. <laughs> so just in terms of, and again, I like you guys. You guys got a kick-ass province. We're, we're if I could live of in Ontario, Oklahoma. I'd be in Alberta. We're like, the size of Oklahoma. We're Oklahoma. You're half the GTA. Yeah. A little bit more. You're probably closer yeah. to about, like, you were, You guys are like, I'm just looking at population numbers now. Ext- expanded greater Toronto area is like eight and a half million-ish, and Alberta is like four and a half. Yeah. So it's a little bit over 50%. But you guys are pursuing policies that are probably destructive to yourselves out of a mistaken apprehension of facts on the ground and how we actually feel about you. Well, and also, and, you, and I just wish you would stop because you're hurting and also, and also, out of out of a mistaken understanding of of our actual size and importance, we we because we have this grandiosity, and also the assumption that you all hate us is indicative of grandiosity. But because of this grandiosity, we also have a massively inflated size of our own importance, and we don't understand that if we were to separate tomorrow, we would be how say this Moldova. We'd be Moldova. No, you'd be the 51st state, right, as America well, goes into a weird terminal yeah, decline. great. Super. And not only that, but let me tell you what, what it's going to be like to be the 51st state, because we're only slightly larger than Puerto Rico, and we wouldn't be full first-class citizens in America. So, like, this, the, there's a lot of fantasy land happening here. There's a lot of fantasy land happening here. And it's, it's, it's like I said, I was not opposed to the idea of Alberta pension plan. I think that if you were to show me convincing math, I might, I might be able to overcome my reservations about who would be managing it but this math is fantasy this is this is a joke this is like honestly honestly i i have feelings of contempt here this is actually a joke make this math work on 10 percent of the current asset base of the of the cpp i think that if we were to go and ask between 10 maybe even up to 15 percent the current asset base in order to as, as seed capital to start our cpp i think that you could you could that would be a reasonable request. It would be a reasonable take. 
And I don't think that they can make the math work on that. And that's just what it is. I'm looking Moving at the, I'm looking at the current stats here. Uh, you guys, I mean, you've so much to be proud of. Like you really do have a strong economy. Like you are, yeah. your share of the GDP is about 30%, 35% higher than the population would sure. explain. Like this Absolutely. is, this is wonderful. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Some, I, we're, we're, we're some important. people spend I'm their not, whole I'm lives. Not saying, I'm not saying we're not important. We're just not that important. You are 14.9% okay? of the national GDP. You're not, they're not going to hand us half the CPP asset base. That, that is, that's no, never I, going to happen. Some people spend their whole lives and end up fucking up their lives trying to prove their high school bullies wrong. Yep. I don't want to see that happen to an entire province. Nope. Anyway, this is recording disaster here. I really hope that nobody takes this seriously. I fear that there are people in positions of power who are going to take this nonsense seriously. Is it worth That's... me reiterating again, just once more, that I do love Alberta? No, we got it. Nobody believes you, Matt. You should, you're because a, I'm just a, trying, you're, you're I'm trying to warn you guys. Look, you're a downtown Toronto elite. Midtown. Midtown. Same big thing. No, you big think, difference think, here. Do you think we know the difference? I don't know the difference. No one cares. You live in I, Toronto. I, I guarantee you, I assume you do not know the difference. You're a monster, is what I'm saying. Yeah, but you're not taking my pension fund. <laughs> Your share. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. 